Good afternoon. Today is the is Monday, the 27th of March 2023. We're 17 minutes past one o'clock. Uh, many apologies for some technical issues there. But uh, welcome to UK Column News and your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. And of course, Mark Anderson reporting from the United States. Right, uh, we'll get straight on uh, with with this. Uh, the, apparently, Rishi is going to be tough. He's going to be tough on all kinds of people. Uh, so let's see. Uh, will this will this run? Let's have a go. No, apparently it won't. Uh, <laughs> okay, we, we're, we're in for an interesting. Yes, news we today. are. Here we go. Okay. Uh, so anyway, tougher punishments for criminals is how it's being described. Uh, and uh, well, let's just uh, let uh, Rishi. I'm not going to hassle anybody with having to listen to what he's having to say here. But but basically what he's announced is uh, all about tackling antisocial behaviour. So perpetrators of antisocial behaviour will face swift and visible justice, increased fines and enhanced drug testing as part of a new crackdown launched by Rishi today. Uh, and he was giving this speech uh, to an absolutely enthralled audience, as you can tell, Brian, there. Uh, so under this uh, plan, 16 areas in England and Wales will be funded to support either new hotspot police or enforcement patrols in areas with the highest rates of antisocial behaviour, or they're going to trial what they're calling new immediate justice scheme, the new immediate justice scheme to deliver swift and visible punishments. Uh, what's, what's in my mind is the dog wardens here in uh, Plymouth, Mike, where you fall, sorry for the pun, foul of the... Uh dog laws and two hoodies are on your case. Well, it's going to be much, much more than that, because look, here here it is. This is their plan for antisocial behaviour, uh, introducing tougher punishment, cracking down on illegal drugs. I thought they were doing that anyway, but maybe not. Uh, tougher fines for litter, graffiti and fly tipping. They don't mention dogs. Uh, launching a new tool for the public to report antisocial behaviour. So yeah. the Stasi state's on its way, but then we've got the increased police and uniformed officer presence in anti-social uh, behaviour hotspots. Okay, so let's just think about this for a second. Increased police and uniformed officer. These aren't all police. The police, of course, uh, have certain rules to abide by, but who are these enforce enforcement patrols? But just sticking with the police for a second, let's put this in the context of this report uh, from the Children's Commissioner this morning, uh, talking about the strip searching of children in England and Wales. This is the analysis by the Children's Commissioner. She's produced a, a useful little graphic here showing 2,847 children aged 8 to 17 were strip searched under stop and search between 2018 and mid 2022. 95% of those searched were boys, 38% of children searched were black, 28% of searches happened in 2020, 51% of searches resulted in no further action, 52% of searches happened without an appropriate adult confirmed to be present. 24% of, of uh, children were between 10 and 15 years old. 37% uh, happened at a police station, 12% at a home address, 45% at a search location, uh, which was not recorded. Uh, and then 6% of strip searches were conducted with at least one officer of a different gender than the child being searched. Uh, and so my question then is, who is, who is it, David, uh, who is uh, committing the antisocial behaviour here? And how do we take what Rishi Sunak has announced today when we have this type of context of bad behaviour by the police not following the rules and the just expanding uh, power, all kinds of powers to, to non-police personnel? 
Well, this is this is a series of very good questions because we've been through 2020, 21, the whole lockdown and justice. We've seen police becoming violent and, and, and aggressive, at such horrible crimes as feeding hungry people, um, having conversations with your neighbours, walking the dog. So there's no limitation, there's no constraint on what they will do. There doesn't seem to be any justice. And there absolutely is not a respect for what used to be called the law in this country. Um, I mean, there's certainly some aspects of this that seem a little comical. I mean, hotspot police, is this, is this like normal police, but better looking? I'm not sure. Um, instant justice, that's what there used to be when the Bobby would give the kid a clip over the ear rather than putting him into the criminal justice system and ruining his life. I doubt that's what they mean now. Um, but the, the strip searching is deeply troubling. One of many things concerning British policing that is deeply troubling. Indeed. Any thoughts? Well, I, we, we, we've got a fascist state installing itself. We've talked about a government of occupation that fits the bill. We look at freedoms being taken away. Families are under attack. This, this is a fascist, we'll call it a fascist system. Um, and it's very clear that this is, this is being put into place. There's no ifs or buts about it. Uh, well, David, let's move from one fascist system to another system, which is increasingly being described as that. And uh, well, let's put, uh, let's put this little video clip on screen. Uh, and uh, this is Tel Aviv, I believe. This is Tel Aviv. This gives you an idea of the scale of the demonstrations in the last 24 hours. Uh, against um, the, the uh, Netanyahu government, uh, against the judicial reforms. Um, and uh, this was sparked by the resignation uh, of <clears throat> uh, the defence minister, or rather the sacking of the defence minister. So here we see Haaretz uh, reporting on this. Um, so they, they said a protest leader has called for an impromptu demonstration after the dismissal of the defence minister. Uh, the opposition leader is saying Netanyahu is a danger to Israel. Um, the Consul General in New York has resigned. Former PM Bennett said Israel is facing the greatest danger since the Yom Kippur War. Um, so, well, people might think that's hyperbole. I'm not so sure it is. Uh, the Jerusalem Post here reports on the, the, the issue regarding the firing of Gallant. Um, after Netanyahu said he's lost trust in his defence minister. Um, now, what happened was uh, Gallant went and said that um, they should pause the judicial overhaul and have discussions and negotiations to try and reach a compromise. And that was unacceptable to uh, Netanyahu, who said that uh, it was a coup behind his back. Uh, he went behind the government's back uh, whilst Netanyahu was visiting the United Kingdom, um, and he has fired him. Uh, and Gallant responded, the security of the state of Israel has always been and will always be my life's mission. So one of the aspects we're seeing here, this is a this is a struggle over, not against, but over the term Zionism. This is about who owns Zionism and what it means. It's an entirely internal view. It doesn't really involve the Arab population. It doesn't involve the Arab voting, the 20% plus of the voting population in Israel that is uh, Palestinian Arab. They're not really involved in this discussion. They're sitting out and watching what's going on. Um, this is a struggle within Israel for what Zionism is about and what the country is going to be about uh, over the coming years. It has all the potential 
to turn violent, to be a civil war, because the issues at stake are that big. Okay. Well, all right. Thank, thank you for that, uh, David. Well, a very quick update on Ukraine. Um, strange situation over the weekend because in lots of ways reports from the front lines were down. This is often the the case when the Russians are maneuvering. So little information initially comes out from the Russians. But we do know that there were quite a few localized attacks by Ukrainian forces in a number of areas. Those were uh, ultimately repulsed by the Russians. But it's clear there's been some pretty heavy fighting um, casualties, of course, on both sides and some of the fighting just too horrific to show clips of it. But if we stick with the important things, Bakhmut, of course, the Russians continue to tighten their grip on the city. They've now taken the northern section of the metal factory, which has all of the underground tunnels, as uh, we heard with the steel plant in Mariupol. But it's gone now. It's in Russian hands and the Russians are moving south from that northern front. And in the south of the city, the Russians are also continuing to make gains. And on the left of the screen there, you've got some locating images. So this is to do with the factory up in the north. Uh, but if I bring this one in, we've got images showing that uh, the Russian forces are moving closer and closer to the city centre. So whatever is being put out on Western media at the moment, the facts are that the Russians continue to advance inside the city albeit done at a slow pace, with individual areas being taken at a time. Uh, the other key areas is Avdivka. This is uh, down near Donetsk. And this is the area from which the Ukrainians have been shelling Donetsk over a great many years. And exactly the same thing is happening here, that the city is continuing to be encircled in a tighter way. There was fighting over the weekend. There was some pushback of Russian forces in localised areas. That ground has been retaken. But this is really where we start to see the reality, because this is one of many, many videos of Russian military supply trains bringing in new equipment, uh, munitions and supplies into Ukraine. They're doing this in vast numbers that the West can't match. We'll be talking about that later. But of course, the Ukrainians are not in the ability, do not have the ability to move forces uh, and supplies in the same way. So the Russians increasing their power on a great uh, um, across all of the all of the fronts and they're also now using air power including 500 kilogram glider bombs which are causing huge problems for the Ukrainian forces so everything we see is that Russia is ramping up its efforts on the front meanwhile at home we've we've got some really fascinating things coming to the fore this was sent to me over the weekend facts for eu highlights brexit britain's defense dominance <laughs> and i was fascinated by this because uh, what i've been reading is article after article talking about the failure of uk's uh, military here's the express depleted army would need 10 years notice to repel a Russian invasion, warns military chief. And just to uh, highlight how bizarre things have become in UK, as I was looking at this article this morning, this was breaking news. Prince Harry bumps into cameraman. Can you imagine, Mike? This is national news that requires the public to be told that Prince Harry 
accidentally bumped into a cameraman. But let's stick on the important stuff. So here's the mail. This was the original report about all this exclusive. Britain would need 10 years notice from Vladimir Putin to be able to repel a Russian invasion. Ex-general says that nation's military used to be ready to respond within four hours before decades of cuts. He's absolutely right. I know this from my own time back in the Cold War. Uh, but of course, the cuts were um, continually condoned by senior military officers who didn't want to put their career at risk. They were party to it. But the key message is the UK military has been hollowed out. Uh, the Mail put up this bizarre comparison because um, I'm not sure what this is supposed to achieve, but let's play the game. Russia personnel, 1.35 million. Uh, tanks, 12,420. Uh, compared to total UK military personnel of 137,000 and a claim of 227 tanks, which I don't even believe, and a claim that our Air Force has 856 aircraft. Well, we're not interested in trainers, we're interested in fighters. And of course, the figure is um, a fraction of that 856 figure compared to 4,173 by the Russians. So we've got a problem here. Let's see what the big boys had to say. This was General Sir Richard Barons, former commander of the UK Joint Forces Command. He said Russia is clearly angry and rearming, so their capability will be restored. And when the shooting stops in Ukraine, Russia will blame the outcome on us. This is a ridiculous statement because Russia is not uh, rearming. They have been arming for some time. They have the arms. They're not worried about running out contrary to the British and the Americans and NATO. Um, but here's the words. We are already in confrontation with Russia right now. We've chosen to do little about it. So effectively, he's saying once again, Mike, that we're at war with Russia. Yeah, we can't ever forget who General Sir Richard Barons is, of course, Integrity Initiative and so on. So he has been pushing an, a Russophobic narrative for a very long time. Yes, in dark places and in deep, dark ponds. He said during the Cold War, the army at all times was ready to fight at four hours notice. When the Cold War ended, there was no sense of sorry, existential risk to the UK. Struggling over that, apologies. All of that was dismantled. And if we go on to Major General Charles Collins, he said the government needs to accept the humiliation that the army's days of independently fighting wars such as in the Falklands are over and Britain's future role was merely co uh, to complement other nations' troops. Now, the complementing of other nations' troops, my, I had to put this little banner on because this to me is what defense, EU Defence Union was all about, that uh, Britain's armed forces were going to be reduced to match it in parity with other European forces. And of course, we know that this drive for the EU Defence Union has never really gone away. Absolutely. So this is interesting. Here's the, here's the Ministry of Defence response. With one of the largest defence budgets in Europe, the UK's armed forces meet a vast range of domestic, that gives you a warm feeling, domestic and global commitments, backed by a 242 billion 10-year equipment plan. This will enable the British Army to become more integrated, agile and lethal 
through delivery of new tanks, attack helicopters and hundreds of armoured vehicles. What does more integrated mean? Does that mean into <laughs> European defence? What does that mean? Possibly, but I think a lot of this, Mike, is the usual word soup. It's words on pieces of paper. It's not actually effective action on the ground. But all of this anonymous, nobody wants to put their name to it. An extra 11 billion over the next five years will provide improved resilience and readiness for the military, while current plans will also see the army have a whole force of over 100,000. It gets smaller every time, uh, consisting of regulars and reserves ready to fight the wars of the future. But of course, if we look at uh, other reports, we can see that all of this is nonsense. Here's the Express saying that the army is not gonna get its Ajax light tanks. Uh, a 5.5 billion pound project facing more delays. Um, so we've paid another 480 million to General Dynamics in order to keep the contract open, but we don't have any Ajax armoured vehicles. It's like the Monty Python cheese shop where the man goes in to ask for cheese. They sell every type of cheese except every single one he wants. So. This is disgraceful. Delivery was planned for 2017, but Ajax vehicles are now expected to be operational by 2029. Well, will they? And are they going to be obsolete? I just want to add to this that if we look at our senior military officers, uh, let's bring in Alan West. Um, if you look at his background, effectively during his time as first Sea Lord, he implemented the Defence White Paper, delivering security in a changing world. That sounds good. Um, he proposed cutting three Type 23 frigate, frigates, three Type 42 destroyers, four nuclear submarines, six mine hunters, and reducing the planned purchase of Type 45 destroyers from 12 to eight. And this is the pattern. We can go back to senior officer after senior officer. They all allowed the cuts to happen because they were too scared to lose their titles and jobs and now they sit in the sideline asking who did it. David, um, we've got to be quick because we've got a very packed news today, but the hypocrisy I just find astonishing. Hypocrisy and lack of competence because it is quite a big budget, but, but it's not delivering uh, ability. Um, the, the idea that we're not able to fight a war for 10 years, yeah, that, that used to be the policy back in the, what was it? Oh, yes. The period after the First World War, we were cutting back. Stop if this reminds you of anything that you've, you've heard here today. We were cutting back because, you know, times were hard. And uh, the assumption was we wouldn't have to fight a major war for 10 years. Um, that assumption went up until 1935. And then they realised they might have to fight a major war. And of course, it was only four years away and it took 10 years to ramp up. And that caused uh, a little local difficulty in the early days of the Second World War. Um, so we've been here before, it didn't go well. Um, and we're here again, and we seem to be spending quite a lot of money and not getting very much ability for it. And you're quite right, there's this constant drumbeat of, well, we're going to be doing other things with other nations, and there's no explanation as to what or why or what role the British people have in deciding what it is. Um, thank you. Well, let's have a look and see what uh, Vladimir Putin is doing with other nations. This was causing quite a furore over the last couple of days uh, because he announced that uh, while well, he was speaking to Russia 24, the television channel, 
uh, and he was saying that uh, Russia would be stationing nuclear weapons on Belarusian uh, territory. Uh, and this is on the basis of a, an agreement that he and uh, Lukashenko have arrived at. There's nothing unusual about this. He said the United States have been doing this for decades. Uh, they placed their tactical nuclear weapons on territories of their allied countries, NATO countries in Europe, a long time ago. Uh, in six states, uh, they, they, sorry, these are the Federal Republic of Germany, Turkey, the Netherlands, Belgium, Italy, and Greece. Well, in Greece, they aren't tactical nuclear weapons now, uh, but uh, there is a storage facility. Uh, and we agreed with Belarus that we will do the same thing without violating, I want to emphasize this, our international obligations on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. Uh, we have already helped our Belarusian colleagues to re-equip their planes. Ten planes are ready uh, to apply this type of weapons. Uh, we've handed over to Belarus our well-known and effective uh, Iskander system uh, that can carry nuclear weapons. Uh, and on April the 3rd, we'll start training the crew and on July the 1st, we'll complete uh, the construction of a special storage for tactical nuclear weapons on the Belarusian territory. So what are your thoughts? Well, it's goose and gander, isn't it? We've seen the Americans do this for a very long time. The moment they get can, they're levering in uh, their military bases. And if they can do it, get in tactical nuclear weapons. And the Russians are saying, well, OK, you want to play this game? We can do it as well. Of course, we're going to start. My prediction is we're going to start to see Finland and uh, Sweden looking very wobbly as they realize what they've brought on themselves. Yes. So um, let's move on with this one. And uh, thanks to a tweet from Mark Sloboda, uh, he says this. Now, this is what neo-colonialism looks like. Ukraine after the openly west back maiden putsch in 2014. And he's talking about uh, Victoria Newland in particular in 2016, because this is a part of another uh, tweet. So I wanted to show people uh, a little clip of uh, Newland talking in 2016. Listen to how she describes the penetration and takeover of Ukraine. And U.S. advisors serve in almost a dozen Ukrainian ministries and localities, helping to deliver services, eliminate fraud and ab abuse, improve tax collection, and modernize Ukrainian institutions. With U.S. help, newly vetted and trained police officers are patrolling the, cities, uh, the streets of 18 Ukrainian cities. In courtrooms across Ukraine, free legal aid attorneys funded by the U.S. have won two-thirds of all the acquittals in the countries. Um, Treasury and State Department advisors have helped Ukraine shutter over 60 failed banks and protected the assets of depositors. And since there can be no reform in Ukraine without security, over $266 million of our support has been in the security sector, training 1,200 soldiers and 750 Ukrainian National Guard personnel, and supplying life-saving gear. In FY16, we are continuing that training and equipment of more of Ukraine's border guards, military, and coast guard. So they've been at it for a very long time. Alongside the BBC and, of course, uh, British uh, secret services operating in Ukraine to control the country and help foment that proxy war against Russia. Mm. Uh, but uh, whilst uh, Victoria Newland appears in that clip, well, clip well scrubbed up uh, with rather a little girl's voice, let's hear what the woman's really about. So we just listened to a little bit of this clip, uh, which was posted on The Guardian. 
When you're a high-ranking official talking about diplomatic efforts in Ukraine, the last thing you want to do is drop your guard. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it and, you know, f*** the EU. But that is exactly what reportedly happened between US Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland and US Ambassador to Ukraine Jeffrey Pyatt. The exchange has since surfaced online, including the crude swipe at the European Union. The audio clip of a woman and man, said to be Newland and Pyatt, hears them discussing strategies to work with the three main opposition figures. I don't think Cleet should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. In terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. I'm just thinking in terms of sort of the process moving ahead, we want to keep the moderate Democrats together. The problem is going to be Tony Book and his guys. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. I think Yats is the guy who... Well, she's happy to use uh, back in 2014 the F word to describe the EU. But of course, what we can hear in that conversation is the US plotting to control politics in Ukraine in order to get a, U, uh, a US friendly agenda, US friendly anti-Russian agenda at work inside Ukraine. So is it any wonder we've got a war? But of course, the war's not going to stop there. Have a look at military.com. Uh, um, talking about uh, comments by um, senior General Milley. Not stopping Russia in Ukraine would force doubling, doubling of the US defence budget, he said. Um, he said that not supporting Ukraine now would lead to a massive increase in future defence budgets and global conflict that's been avoided since World War II. So we've got to pump up this war in order to prevent another war. Uh, but of course, is he doubling or is he doubling down? Because many people saying actually what's happening here is that the war is being lost. Russia is winning the war, not Ukraine and the West. And so we're going to try betting on pumping in more weapons to try and save it. But this was a key comment in that rules based order, which is in its 80th year. If that goes out the window, then be very careful. We'll be doubling our defence budgets. Uh, budgets at that point, because that will introduce not an era of great power competition, that'll begin an era of great power conflict, and that'll be extraordinarily dangerous for the whole wor world. So we've got uh, fear, war, and more war if the US doesn't stay top dog. If anybody dares challenge what the Americans are up to, you can be sure we're going to get more war. And uh, his Reuters, uh, Ukraine to receive Abrams tanks from the US as soon as this fall. Um, so what we're really saying is that the US is a superpower scraping the barrel for ammunition. You're going to be talking about that in a minute, Mike. But uh, we can't get tanks or the US can't get tanks to uh, Ukraine in time. The Russians know this and that's why those troop and weapons trains are rumbling into uh, the Donbass region. Um, but uh, this is where it gets uh, ridiculous, I think. The BBC, very excited. Putin arrest warrant issued over war crime allegations. Um, so the court's saying he's responsible for war, war crimes. Um, but uh, if we go back a bit, this is 2018. US threatens to arrest the ICC judges if they pursue Americans for Afghan war crimes. So it's pot and kettle again uh, with the US above the law. But of course, none of this ends in uh, Ukraine and war in Eastern Europe. 
because at the same time the Americans are ramping up a potential war against China. Have a listen to the senior military officer for the American Pacific Fleet speaking. This is the first of two clips. The United States Navy helped secure victory in two world wars and the Cold War. Today, the Navy remains a formidable fighting force, but even officers within the service have questioned its readiness. While the U.S. spent 20 years fighting land wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Pentagon watched China, its greatest geopolitical rival of the 21st century, build the largest Navy in the world. China has threatened to use that Navy to invade Taiwan, an important American ally. As tensions with China continue to rise, we wanted to know more about the current state of the U.S. Navy and how it's trying to deter China while preparing for the possibility of war. One third of the Navy is always deployed and operating at all times. The Navy's mustering right now about 300 ships, and there are about 100 ships at sea right now all around the globe. Admiral Samuel Paparo commands the U.S. Pacific Fleet, whose 200 ships and 150,000 sailors and civilians make up 60 percent of the entire U.S. Navy. We met him last month on the aircraft carrier USS Nimitz, deployed near the U.S. territory of Guam, southeast of Taiwan and the People's Republic of China, or PRC. You've been operating as a naval officer for 40 years. How has operating in the Western Pacific changed? In the early 2000s, the PRC Navy mustered about 37 vessels. Today, they're mustering 350 vessels. This month, China's new foreign minister, Qin Gong, delivered a stern warning to the U.S. He said that if Washington does not change course in its stance towards China, conflict and confrontation is inevitable. What will the U.S. Navy do? It's a decision of the president of the United States and a decision of the Congress. It's our duty to be ready for that. But the bulk of the United States Navy will be deployed rapidly to the Western Pacific to come to the aid of Taiwan if the order comes to aid Taiwan in thwarting that invasion. Is the U.S. Navy ready? We're ready, yes. Uh, I'll never admit to being ready enough. Yes. President Biden has declared four times, including on 60 Minutes, that the U.S. military would defend Taiwan, which is a democracy and the world's leading producer of advanced microchips. What's the most powerful in the U.S. Navy? It's an aircraft carrier, and its air wing is capable of 150 strike or air-to-air -air sorties per day, with, uh, at its surge levels, the ability to deliver 900 precision-guided munitions every day and reloadable every night. So even though China now has the largest navy in the world, they don't have anything like this in terms of aircraft carriers? They do not, but they're working towards it. And they have, they have two operational aircraft carriers right now. So there we have it. The American uh, forces uh, there on China's doorstep, and he's talking about the capability of those forces. We could question some of it, but let's see the second clip where it gives at least an idea of how the Chinese see the situation. This is how China and Taiwan appear on most maps. This is how the Chinese Communist Party sees the Western Pacific, including the South and East China Seas from Beijing. 
Taiwan is the fulcrum in what China's leaders call the first island chain, a constellation of U.S. allies that stretches across its entire coast. Control of Taiwan is the strategic key to unlocking direct access to the Pacific and the sea lanes where about 50 percent of the world's commerce gets transported. China has accused the United States of trying to contain them. What do you say to China? I would say, uh, do you need to be contained? Are you expanding? Are you an expansionist power? To a very great extent, the United States was the champion for China's rise. And in no way are we seeking to contain China. What we are seeking for them to play by the rules. China's Navy, a branch of the People's Liberation Army, is now the world's largest. China is also using its 9,000-mile coastline to rewrite the rules of fighting at sea, as these images from Chinese state media show. Its military has invested heavily in long-range, precision-guided weapons, like the DF-21 and DF-26, that can be used to target ships. Well, there's lots more interesting dialogue in that clip, but uh, what I picked out from it was uh, lots of initial confidence by the uh, American admiral there, but he knows perfectly well that his vast aircraft carriers are now big targets for hypersonic missiles uh, from the Chinese, and that's why he hesitated when he said, I'm ready, but, but, but I could be... I could be more ready. So we've got a very interesting situation here, but I thought this was a particularly interesting interview because it did actually start to give the impression of what the Chinese see when they look out to sea and they look at how they can get their trade out onto the world's oceans. They're effectively faced with an American blockade. Um, Mark, I don't know whether you'd like to respond to that. Yeah, this... The hypocrisy is very thick. First of all, the United States State Department and the Council on Foreign Relations betrayed Chiang Kai-shek uh, when he had to flee China and Mao took over and he went to Formosa, which is now uh, Taiwan. So the U.S. government, at least through the factions that were internationalists at the time, completely betrayed Chiang. Uh, and that was, that's what created Taiwan and, and uh, welcomed in the communist forces and uh, General George Marshall played a role in that betrayal as well. And then in the modern sense, the U.S. trade deficit with China, according to a late author with whom I had a lot of correspondence, uh, Gus Stelzer, a very intelligent uh, former GM executive, he did a great book called The Nightmare of Camelot on the Free Trade Trojan Horse. And what they did is through the uh, trade deficit with China, it was backdoor foreign aid. China would leverage that huge, huge trade surplus on its side of the ledger, and it would pump that money into the military. So on paper, the U.S. was not giving China direct foreign aid. It was a backdoor foreign aid. Stelzer laid it out, and that's how they created a lot of their military muscle over the decades. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. Okay, uh, if you like what the UK column does, if you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, a quick reminder that uh, we unfortunately are going to have to put the uh, uh, membership fees up slightly at the uh, beginning of May. So, but anybody that's on a membership already won't get that pay rise or that price rise. So, so please do uh, 
uh, join before the 1st of May if you'd like to take advantage of that possibility. Uh, but uh, you can pick something up at the UK Column Shop is another option, but please do share material you find on the various platforms, including keeping an eye on ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Okay, and a reminder again of AV13, Sunday the 22nd of October 2023 at the Leonardo Hotel Milton Keynes United Kingdom. There are still tickets, but they're very, going very quickly. So if you haven't got your tickets, get in there and buy them. And also we're going to have an online AV, uh, which is the 20, I believe that should be the 23rd 3rd. 3rd of April. Apologies for that, the 23rd of April, 2023. And, um, uh, that obviously gives people more flexibility as it's an online event. And that's on Smart Cities, which and Mark Anderson, I believe, will be speaking. Yes, I believe that's confirmed, Mark. You're going to speak. Yeah, on, on, on global cities and how it fits into smart cities, that kind of thing. That's right. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, we just pop up this email because uh, we had a very nice email about uh, rises to uh, membership. Uh, to memberships for the UK column and Cheryl C here said I wanted to th I wanted to thank you for keeping the original subscription fee frozen for people who are already members I'm disabled and on benefits from my income and as such every penny has to stretch I love my news fix from yourselves three times a week and it's such a joy to know my news is from journalists who want to get the truth out the truth of the matters uh, they report on out effectively I'm an ex-nurse myself and have a special soft spot for Debbie. But I think every single one of you are a credit to the nation for bringing us truth in the face of the complete censorship uh, or the manufactured ignorance of the mainstream media. Keep up the great work. Well, Cheryl, thank you very much for that. And I'm glad that our, pay, uh, our membership increase, we've got about right. So thank you for that confidence. Um, okay, let's move uh, back to arms and armaments and how it's gonna get funded. Uh, and first of all, International Monetary Fund here has decided to give Ukraine another bung. Uh, this time, IMF and Ukrainian authorities reach what they're describing as a staff-level agreement on $15.6 billion of extended fund facility arrangement. Now, this is uh, coming in the form of uh, special drawing rights. Uh, and, uh, well, what's interesting about this is, if we just bring this on screen, uh, the EFF with requested access of uh, SDR 11, sorry, 11.6 billion uh, special drawing rights. That's about 15.6 billion US dollars or 577% of quota. Now this is important because uh, the IMF basically allocates a quota of potential uh, SDR access to countries around the world. Um, and the Ukraine's limit is $3 billion worth. Um, and what's supposed to happen is that um, they're not supposed to give out more than 200% of that in an emergency, but they've decided, because it's a rules-based international order, Brian. We're gonna break you know, the rules. You well, you change the rules. So, so they change the rules. So here, here's, here's the key point here. Uh, every time the IMF makes a loan, uh, it puts a conditionality uh, on it. And of course, if you're an African country, then there's all kinds of conditionalities go on loans from the IMF. But if you're Ukraine, there's no conditionalities as, uh, at all, as far as we can see. Um, so let's have a look at uh, IMF quotas. Quotas are the building blocks of the IMF's financial and governance structure. An individual member country's quota broadly reflects its relative position in the world economy. Uh, quotas, quotas are the denomination uh, in special drawing rights, are, the, den I, are denominated. Sorry, in. are denominated in special 
uh, drawing rights, the IMF's unit of account, uh, and they have a formula for it. Uh, so I'm not going to try to explain this now. We don't have time, but there is a formula and it comes out with a number and they're not supposed to go beyond that number. Uh, but they decided a couple of weeks ago to temporarily raise borrowing limits to aid vulnerable, vulnerable uh, countries. This appeared in Reuters and they did it just in time to make this loan to Ukraine. Uh, so Reuters here reporting uh, March the 7th. Uh, it's in an, international, an announcement late on Monday, the fund said its cumulative lending limits were, were increased to 600% of a country's quota or shareholding in the fund from a previous limit of 435%. The 12-month borrowing limit was raised to 200% of quota from 145%. So uh, money available for Ukraine. In fact, it's the only way that Ukraine can function is to keep uh, taking money or borrowing money. And the question is, how are they ever going to pay this back? Because, of course, you need a functioning economy to, in order to pay back debt. Uh, and, but if your country has been flattened in the meantime, uh, well, you're only going to need more and more debt to try to rebuild. And so I'm not clear how this is ever going to... Uh, yes. It effectively means Ukraine is being sold or has already been sold. It, it's no longer the property of Ukrainians. It's been placed in the hands of international bankers and construction firms. That's in, where they're looking. Indeed. Uh, but in the meantime, what's Russia doing with respect to weapons? Uh, because Russia, as Brian mentioned earlier on, seems to have plenty of them. Um, so here's uh, Dmitry Medvedev. This is what he's saying. Our enemies thought that our industry would be overwhelmed. There were endless claims. Munitions were, are running out. Tanks are running out. Missiles are running out. Uh, sure, we didn't think it would be necessary some time ago to restart the arms industry the way they have, but it's become a necessity. And they, ha they have uh, seemed to, to re well, reinvigorate the industry, shall we say. They certainly have no shortages. But what I wanted to have a look at here was what, how was this being paid for? Where was the money coming from? Where's Russia taking on lots more debt? Uh, so let's have a look at Russia's national, national debt. This is Moody's Analytics. Now, th this only gives up to 2021, so okay, that's before the war started and maybe things have changed. But what we're seeing here is that Russia's national debt in 2021 was, what? what is that, about 13-14% uh, of GDP. That seems a very low figure. So I looked elsewhere. Here's the CEIC view of Russia's government debt, percentage of GDP from December 2011 to September 2022. And by uh, the end of 2022, it was 13.44% of GDP. Uh, if we look at Statista here, which is giving a forecast right through to 2027, uh, we're seeing that it's, well, it's rising for sure, but it's uh, not, it's falling again by 2027. So it's, and this is a, a dollar value. Uh, so we're looking at uh, peaking at around $400 billion of debt in 2023, 2024. Uh, so I thought that was quite an interesting uh, idea here, but that really Russia is not suffering in the way that the West is suffering. We're going to show that in a second. Uh, but in the meantime, of course, the EU uh, has been begging uh, its member states uh, for munitions for Russia, for Ukraine, sorry, before I slip there. Uh, so following my proposal, member states agreed to deliver 1 million rounds of artillery ammunition within the next 12 months. So they can't even do it very quickly. It's going to take them some time. We've got a three-track approach, Burrell said, 1 billion euros for immediate delivery, 1 billion euros for joint procurement, and a commission to ramp up production, production capacity. But what's happening with, uh, with debt in the, at the EU level? Well, let's have a look. Uh, government debt is down to 93% of GDP. Russia's government debt 
what we're saying, less than 20% of GDP, but for the EU, uh, for the Eurozone anyway, 93%, 85.1% of GDP in the EU as a whole. And if we look in the, in the UK as well, uh, UK asked BAE to ramp up artillery shell production amid uh, Ukraine drawdown. That's the drawdown of uh, shells. Uh, and we are roughly 98.9% of GDP is our debt levels at the moment. Uh, I'm finding this an interesting picture, David. I'd be interested to get your thoughts on it. Well, I mean, it does show that Russia is in a very, a very substantially more robust position because they're not um, pushing forward this enormous bow wave of debt that every Western country has because of the policies we've, we've, we've been following um, least since the 90s. Um, big state, big government, big spending, um, and um, big bailouts, and we're not going to have any recessions because, you know, the central banks are going to sort everything. And it's all going on the balance sheet. It's all going on the nation's credit card. And it's uh, pretty... Um, uh, pretty stretched. You mentioned that figure there, total. The peak government debt in Russia is predicted to be 400 billion. Well, we've got, a, we've got an example of what that actually means to, uh, to compare it here. Uh, this is the total assets uh, for the Federal Reserve. Now, it peaked about a year ago, uh, just under 9 trillion, trillion. Um, and uh, over the course of a year, they were tightening. And they actually were tightening until they broke the banking system. And they tightened about $600 billion. And they broke the banking system. And in the last two weeks, they have put back onto their balance sheet, in other words, created money out of thin air and bought things, um, $400 billion. That's in two weeks. That's the equivalent to the long-term national debt of the Russian government at uh, its peak, and a few years hence, and it shows you just how how severe and how uh, how rapid the expansion of money printing has been in response to the banking crisis. But it gets worse. Uh, we've got here um, borrowings by small domestically chartered commercial banks in the United States of America. So you see here, well, it 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 peaked um, before uh, around about the COVID lockdown. Um, at uh, just under 400 uh, billion. Again, that's equivalent to Russia's total national debt. Okay, um, Just before the current crisis, it was just over 400 billion, uh, and it's now sitting at 670 billion. That spike is not normal. There's nothing like, you could look at the chart on any timeline you like, there's nothing like that ever happened before. That's absolutely ex exceptional. That shows panic vast um, uh, onboarding of debt by the commercial banks uh, in order to prevent collapse. Okay, um, okay we'll have another example. Uh, again, from the Fed's uh, own statistics. Um, so this is um, other credit extensions. Now, other credit extensions was basically zero as far back as the data goes. But all of a sudden, in the last two weeks, We've suddenly created uh, other liquidity and credit facilities of uh, $180 billion. You know, and, and I'd have to point out, $100 billion here, $100 billion there, $400 billion there. After a little while, it starts to add up to real money, gentlemen. Um, and we've got another strange one here. Um, repurchase agreements 
for foreign official um, institutions, right? So this is the Fed re having repurchased. So they're, 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 they're basically given money for an asset on the understanding that that asset will be bought back uh, at some future point. For foreign official sources, all of a sudden, in the last few days, they took $60 billion and gave it to some foreign entity. This is the Fed. Why are they doing this? Who did it go to? Was it Deutsche Bank? We don't know any of these things, but it's never happened before. And this is my point, that the banking crisis, which everyone's assuring us, oh, it's all controlled, nothing like those figures have ever been seen before, not even remotely close. Um, we're looking at, uh, well, also keeping a close eye on Deutsche Bank because they've been sugly for a wee while. Um, and Newsweek here reports uh, Deutsche Bank col collapse risk grows um, and experts are looking for the next domino to fall. So Deutsche Bank's shares dropped 11% on Friday and they've fallen 29% since the banking crisis started in 2023 and they've fallen about 85% since they're high. And I would point out that banking shares are doing something odd at the moment. Normally what happens is there's a slight uptick in share prices on a Friday and a slight down throw on a Monday morning. It's the way it tends, it's a pattern that tends to be um, uh, repeated over time. With banking just now, it's, re it's reversing. Banking shares fall on a Friday and go back up on Monday. This is because people are offloading banking shares because they don't know if the banks are still going to be there on Monday because all the funny business is happening at the weekend. Um, now, everyone's assuring us Deutsche Bank's fine. Quote, we have no concerns about Deutsche Bank's viability or asset marks. To be crystal clear, Deutsche is not the next Credit Suisse, um, said research firm Autonomous. German Chancellor uh, Schultz has also dismissed the panic, say, uh, saying... The bank had been thoroughly reorganized and modernized in its business model and is very profitable. So there we go. We'll see how that one goes. Um, meanwhile, there's a flight to safety, and safety these days doesn't mean the dollar. Safety these days means gold. So here we see the uh, FT reporting. Traders pile into bets on the gold price. So calls, which are basically bets and that the, the gold price is going to go up, are huge. Puts, which is bets that gold price is going to go down, are very, very small. So there's massive um, investment going into gold. And it's not just traders, right? So we have here uh, the World Gold Council reporting that they've made a mistake. They had reported that 2022 was the highest central bank buying of gold in 55 years. Transpires, that's not right. It's actually the highest on record at all, at all. So right the way back to the Second World War, at the start of Bretton Woods, all the rest of it, 2022 was the most gold that central banks had ever purchased. I would point out that it's gone up, uh, the, the figure for January 23 is higher again than anything that happened in any month of 2022. So this trend is continuing. Uh, which makes Gordon Brown's behaviour with respect to British gold even more interesting. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, Mark, let's bring you, bring you in. Thank you for holding on. And um, you've got a report here on the World Health Organization, and you're also going to give us a bit of an update with um, Trump. So let's uh, start off with who. Yeah, this is very brief. Um, this is just a basic update. Uh, 
it cannot be overemphasized how important it is, of course, to keep monitoring the development of the World Pandemic Treaty and the parallel track, the international health regulations. And James Roguski, the Los Angeles researcher who's really uh, dug deep into this, along with myself, uh, the WHO stuff, uh, this is a statement from him. The proposed pandemic treaty would give the WHO control over pathogens with pandemic potential, as well as control over the means of production within the pharmaceutical hospital emergency industrial complex, which is something I didn't emphasize as much in my recent reports. That's why I want to get it out there now. It's an absolute abomination that must be stopped, Roguski uh, added in his opinion. The proposed amendments, he added, to the international health regulations would make the WHO's proclamations legally binding rather than just advisory in nature. The proposed amendments seek to institute global digital health certificates, one of the more worrisome parts of this, dramatically increase the billions of dollars available to the WHO and enable nations to implement the regulations, likely at least, without respect for the dignity, human rights, and fundamental freedoms of people and that phrase there about fundamental freedoms is something that's been edited out of early versions of the IHR. And so that's why that, that concern is in there. And, and lastly, this is also very important, agreement by a simple majority of the 194 member nations is all that is needed to adopt the IHR amendments because as amendments to an existing agreement, neither the advice and consent of the U.S. Senate nor the signature of the president would be required. And that's particularly important because you might recall recently, I talked about Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin pointing out in a press release that he was concerned that they would call the pandemic treaty an instrument or some other name. He wanted to make sure it was called a treaty so the Senate could weigh in and give its advice or consent on that treaty like it would any other treaty. And it would need, of course, a two-thirds supermajority to uh, sign off on that. But I'm still waiting for an answer back from Johnson's office on whether he is just as concerned about the IHR, the regulations, as he is about the treaty. Because of what I just said, um, apparently that could float through this without the Senate even getting involved. So is he only worried about the treaty and not enough about the regulations? That's what I want to find out. But that's, that's a sufficient update on that right now. Okay, thank you for that, Mark. Take take us on to uh, Trump and uh, what's happening around him. Yeah, this is a rather colorful and somewhat entertaining piece of news. Uh, he spoke this past Saturday in Waco, Texas. And this first item that we're showing on the screen, the way the media is characterizing a lot of this is, is quite laughable in some respects. This headline uh, from Yahoo News, Attacks on investigations and DeSantis takeaways from Trump's first major 2024 campaign rally. So the media is all up in arms that Trump is even running, let alone what he's saying and what he's doing. But it basically says here, former President Donald Trump replayed his greatest hits Saturday evening. That's just this past Saturday. And that means talking about a lot of the same themes he talked about before. In that 95-minute speech, he railed against the Biden administration and so on and so forth. The investigations it mentions there are, uh, briefly speaking, the investigation as to whether Trump paid an attorney, uh, Michael Cohen, who has come out against Trump, and whether paying that attorney fee to Cohen was an indirect way of paying off a stripper, Stormy Daniels, 
in order to shut her mouth about having an affair with Trump. It's a bit salacious, but that's what those investigations are about. Whether that lawyer Cohen was an intermediary to pay off Daniels, but make it look like Trump was simply paying a legal fee. And then DeSantis, the shadow boxing going on here is that Trump is an arch foe of Florida, Florida Governor DeSantis. I don't necessarily believe it. I think that might be just a bunch of back channeling where later on DeSantis and Trump might appear as running mates. But right now they're just putting conflict out there just to give people something to chew on and just to throw a meat, throw, throw a bone to the media. And so I don't know that that's a real attack on DeSantis. I don't know how genuine that is. I think it might be a ploy, like what I'm saying. But going on to the next slide, this is where it gets more into the meat of the media's uh, malpractice on this. Um, talking about Trump's appearance in Waco, the former president steered clear of addressing the deadly Waco siege nearly 30 years ago that experts in political science feared may have informed his decision to hold the rally there. And let's go on from there. Uh, this will further explain it. This is a day before the rally, this past Friday, USA Today, Trump holding his next rally in Waco, Texas, sends a message to the far right, these experts say, these much ballyhooed experts. And going on from there, the next item, this is the same article, former President Trump launching his bid to return to the White House, even as he rallies supporters to protest against an arrest he claims is impending, the arrest over Stormy Daniels, allegedly, chose an auspicious location for one of his earliest rallies for the 2024 election, the city of Waco. The rally planned for Saturday, which did happen at an airport, will fall during the 30th anniversary of the siege of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco. Federal agents aiming to arrest the cult leader, David Koresh, surrounded his walled compound, a favorite media word there, everybody's house is a compound if you have guns, in an armed standoff that lasted more than a month. It ended at a botched raid that left, reportedly left 76 dead, including 25 children. And going on from there, um, the San Antonio Express News, uh, not to be outdone, uh, put here that the, this, uh, and, and the wording here is a particular note. Uh, is talking about a reporter from the San Antonio Express News, Diana Fuentes, uh, who was a staffer at that paper at the time of the Waco standoff in 1993. And this writer for that same paper is recalling that Dana, Diana rather, Diana Fuentes, was at the Waco siege for 46 days in a row. She took a couple of days off starting day 47 and returned on day 50 to witness the Branch Davidian compound called Mar Mount Carmel go up in flames the next day. This Saturday, former President Trump plans to hold the first rally of his 2024 bid for the Republican presidential nomination there, implying, as I circled the words there, implying that he's gonna hold the rally where the compound once stood. But now I'm showing a map. On the left, the Waco Regional Airport is shown, and on the right with the red circle is where the Branch Davidian compound is shown uh, uh, in terms of its relative location. And as I wrote on there, they're 17 miles apart. So the media is basically writing a story in search of reality. They're trying to say that Trump is is a um, far-right fanatic like David Koresh was, uh, and that's what brought on the Waco siege. But it's a story that just won't stick because it really is just wild speculation. Here, this is from Wikipedia, very basic. 
Trump spoke in Waco on Saturday, March 25th. And uh, as Wikipedia puts here, the Waco siege was carried out by the U.S. government and Texas state law enforcement between February 28th and April 19th. The real bellwether day when the fire happened was on April 19th. So really, Trump was just by happenstance in the middle of that so-called anniversary. And yet the media is acting like he was on the grounds of where the compound once stood and acting like that was the driving force and the driving reason for him appearing in Waco. But again, the story just won't stick because the facts don't bear it out, as I'm showing here. And the San Antonio Express News, again, engaging in raw, rampant speculation and really its own conspiracy theories. We have to remember, guys, that the, ma the mass media cartel, the, the mainstream media, it, it decries people for having conspiracy theories, but it has conspiracy theories of its own. And this is a bit of evidence here. Cult leader David Koresh's followers saw him as the Messiah, the embodiment of the second coming of Christ. Trump's followers will glorify him too, and the location sends a clear signal to their extremist views. The location being in Waco. Like the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms uh, decision to go into the compound, no good can come from this, yada, yada. Lines can be drawn, this writer adds, from Waco to other horrific events. The most direct is the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing of the Alfred Murrah Federal Building. And I believe there's one more that gets into this. Lines can be drawn from Waco to other horrific events. That's the Oklahoma building I mentioned. It was the work of ex-Army soldier Timothy McVeigh, who was in Waco with other far-right radicals. He handed out anti-government literature from the hood of a car. But the New American Magazine, among other sources, brought out that McVeigh might have been a, a government agent posing as an anti-government guy. That, that's been uh, widely discussed, and it is entirely possible. Um, uh, lastly, on this article, the lines from Waco meet up again January 6, 2021 at the U.S. Capitol. This is J6, where Trump supporters used violence to try to stop the certification of 2020 results and show, that showed that President Biden had won. So you see that the media is cooking up its own vast conspiracy theory here. And, and we thought that they didn't engage in conspiracy theorizing. Well, it turns out at times they do. And uh, their animus toward Trump is kind of what turns that on. Anyway, Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick pretty much set the record straight. And this article uh, does admit Trump, Trump did not actually mention the Waco siege of 1993 while he, held, while he held the rally at an airport 17 miles away from where the Waco siege happened. I, I'll reiterate that. And uh, the extremism experts speculated uh, however, that this informed his decision to hold the rally there, uh, the events of Waco. And uh, going on, uh, Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, a prominent uh, Trump supporter, uh, he uh, ascended the rally stage as the PA system played a Brooks and Dunn song, Brooks and Dunn song called How, How Far to Waco, excuse me. And he said he picked the site. Uh, Patrick said that Trump picked the Waco site because the people of the region represent the American values and the Texas values and the godly values of this country. That's the reason he's here. And uh, some people I talked to also said it was a reasonably central location in such a huge state like Texas for Trump to hold his first rally. And uh, so this kind of bears out what the truth actually is about the situation. And uh, Wake, uh, Yahoo News also noted here that... Um, 
Uh, however, undertones of violence did emerge throughout the speech. They're claiming uh, Trump promised to be an agent of retribution if, if reelected as president. And he told the crowd at one point, either the deep state destroys America or we destroy the deep state, which he did say. And that's an interesting statement. Of course, the media, the myopic media, takes these things at an unrealistic face value. Uh, politically speaking, any wise citizen or seasoned reporter knows that when Trump uses these words, he actually means to use the legal processes, the legislative, executive, and judicial processes to try and take on what he sees as the deep state. Assuming, of course, that Trump really means this, some believe that he really means this at heart. Others believe it's just word candy for his supporters, and um, some have lost confidence in Trump, of course, and they believe he's damaged goods or at least maybe past his prime. I won't make that call, but that's just kind of how things are, are bearing out. And uh, this, what you're showing on the screen here is from Trump's Truth Social, social media outlet that he started himself. Um, he's talking about the Stormy Daniels matter. They have absolutely no case. The only, witness, the only witnesses are their, excuse me, the only witnesses are against their so-called star witness a serial liar, convicted felon, and disbarred lawyer. I did nothing wrong, and they know it. This and everything else they are doing with the DOJ-led witch hunt is all about election interference, their new and highly sophisticated method of cheating on elections. So that shows that Trump is not backing down. He believes that election was still stolen in 2020, and the, uh, the um, so-called star witness, the serial liar, is... Um, the attorney, the attorney who used to be uh, Trump's attorney, Michael Cohen, who reportedly came out against him and said, again, that the, the money he received in Trump's legal fees was actually to pay off Stormy Daniels to silence her about that uh, alleged affair. But anyway, not to get too, off, too far off into the weeds, winding this up about Trump, another interesting thing he talked about there was futuristic freedom cities. Now, this sounds a little outlandish, maybe, at first glance. But what are these futuristic freedom cities that he spoke about in Waco? The next slide uh, sums everything up. Trump's plan, which was shared in advance with Politico, a D.C. journal, calls for holding a contest, get this, to design and create up to 10 new freedom cities built from the ground up on federal land. It proposes an investment in the development of vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, the creation of hives of industry, sparked by cutting off imports from China, speaking of China, and a population surge sparked by baby bonuses to, to encourage would-be parents to get on with procreation. It is all, his team says, Trump's team, part of a larger nationwide beautification campaign meant to inspire forward-looking visions of America's future. Now, that does sound a little like driving on the edge of the road a bit, but uh, uh, I don't know if you guys have any comments on that. That sounds like the opposite of global cities, but I haven't looked at it enough to make that determination. So Trump is, is really pulling out all the stops on his first campaign, uh, trying to fight off these hollow allegations that it was all because of Waco and he's in league with David Koresh's spirit or something. But uh, it's an interesting and colorful first effort for Trump at any rate. If you have any comments, fine. If not, we can move on. I think uh, my, my brief comment is, is is on his final statement there, and not that I was 
beginning of the 50s, I wasn't around. But if you look at clips of news of radio or, or very early TV back in the 50s, people were often looking into the future and suggesting very positive things that could be happening. They were talking about space travel and rockets and and uh, super ships. And this was accepted as a positive, normal thing that people could look into the future and say, this is where we want to take ourselves. And isn't it ironic now that if you come up with a plan that's in that ilk, uh, you're going to be branded as the madman unless you happen to be on board with the World Economic Forums or the UN's campaign for these these uh, futuristic ideas. So, yeah, that's my my take on it. I think we'll say a bit more on extra, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, look, on Friday we were talking, we'll come back to the UK now, on Friday we were talking about the Genetic Technology Precision Breeding Act, as it now is. Uh, it's been given royal assent. Uh, this was a bill to make provision about the release and marketing of and risk assessments relating to the precision precision bred plants and animals. Well, actually not precision bred at all, but actually, uh, gene edited uh, using CRISPR technology. If you want to have a look at the, uh, Friday's news program to get the, the deals on that, the, the, the background on that. But if you remember, we quoted, quoted Joe Churchill, the former uh, Minister for Agri-Innovation and Climate Adaptation, speaking in January 2022, uh, describing how these new genetic technologies would help us tackle some of the biggest challenges of our age for example, around food security. And one of the points I made on Friday was, well, perhaps if we allowed our farmers to grow food, uh, we wouldn't have a problem with food security in this country. But let's just look at what else is going on. Uh, more efforts to stop farmers growing food, it seems. Uh, and this time we're talking about Dartmoor. So this is Natural England. Uh, now, before we get into the, what this is about, let's just uh, let you know who Natural England is. Uh, they say that they are the government's advisor for the natural environment in England. We help to protect and restore our natural world. Natural England is an executive non-departmental public body sponsored by the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. So anyway, the, this article that they published uh, a few days ago, uh, sorry, the headline is uh, Nature on Dartmoor uh, and it's uh, reflections from Wes Smith, Natural England's area manager on how we can ensure Dartmoor's unique wildlife is preserved for future generations. And he says it's become clear over recent years that the relationship between farming nature and other impacts like climate change are not in balance and nature is declining in a way that may jeopardize the huge value that Dartmoor brings to local communities and visitors. Um, well, perhaps unsurprisingly, well, in fact, the outcome of this is that apparently Natural England are pushing very, very hard now to remove the ability for farmers uh, to um, graze their uh, sheep and so on on common land in Dartmoor. Um, and uh, because through the use of sites of special scientific interest. Um, now, this has been commented on in the mainstream press by some of the, uh, the uh, activists in this area. But this is uh, David, Dr. Adrian uh, Colston tweeting out, he's from Exeter University, uh, and he's saying Cat catastrophe in uplands farming. And he's highlighting a, an interview on uh, farming today, uh, basically warnings that the government's green approach to hill farming will backfire. Well, it depends on what you mean by backfire. But anyway, he said Natural England needs to get their act together and realize that on Dartmoor, most of our commons, and that's 50% of Dartmoor, plus their uh, of their areas, are uh, severely undergrazed uh, and are dominated by the grass uh, millennia. Uh, favorable conditions will not be achieved by further stocking cuts. 
uh, let this madness stop, please. Uh, and uh, Devon Live covered this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, farmers fear plans to remove livestock from Dartmoor and just want to quote, uh, one, read out one of the quotes here. It says, much of Dartmoor's open land was legally designated sites of special scientific interest decades ago. More SSSIs are being planned and nowadays designation comes with a clear intent to change the landscape rather than to preserve what's there now. It hardly takes a very elastic imagination to realize that if something was precious enough to be so designated decades ago and livestock had been grazing there for centuries previously, then the livestock themselves are probably part of the matrix. I think this is a very valid point, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, if you if you simply remove the livestock without actually establishing whether the livestock are having a detrimental effect or not, and in fact that uh, that doctor from Exeter University saying very clearly they're not having a detrimental effect. Effect, in fact, there's too much of the wrong type of grass up there, and we need more grazing. Uh, then this green policy is once again insane. But in the meantime, we're pushing forward with gene editing and messing around with things that we don't actually understand at this point in an effort to deal with food security uh, when it's actually government policy which is destroying our food security in this country. David, do you got any thoughts? Um, well, we'll maybe get into this in extra time. It, it, the the policy which is anti-food, right? we're seeing this in many, th many ways. We're seeing areas covered over with solar panels. We're seeing... Uh, crops being used to make biofuels and other things. It's all pushing up the price of food. What is the price of food doing just now? Well, it's going up at something like 20%. So um, we're meant to be fighting inflation. So again, we're seeing incoherence. We're seeing one part of the government policy um, in complete opposition to what another part of government policy claims to be doing. Uh, someone's not telling the truth. Indeed. Okay, let's uh, move on to uh, Posey Parker. Yes, Posey Parker, Kelly J. Keane, has been to New Zealand. He is a still of her, uh, enjoying life in New Zealand. Now, a couple of J things. Posey Parker is a small blonde woman. She's a wife, she's a mother, she's five foot one, and she is an utter hero because she stood up and bravely said that woman means adult human female. Um, and for that, um, she was attacked. We have some video. New Zealand Auckland let women let women speak rally, and that was the caring and compassionate uh, LGBT uh, and, and and trans um, grouping making sure that the women couldn't speak. Uh, I was at their event in Glasgow, uh, which I would have to say was excellent. The women who were speaking had very many important things to say. They weren't going to say them in Auckland, however, because that mob was going to make sure that um, no one was safe and uh, no one could be heard. 
Brendan O'Neill in this uh, in the Spectator was writing about this. Uh, he said this must have been what it's like like when w women were marched to the stake. And yesterday night, when the British women's rights campaigner Posey Parker found herself surrounded by a deranged, heaving mob. She had tomato soup and placards thrown at her face. She was doused with water. Huge men screamed insults and expletives in her face. The shoving of the crowd became so intense that Parker feared for her life. Quote, I genuinely thought that if I fell to the floor, I would never get up again, she said. My children would lose their mother and my husband would lose his wife. Um, so in some of the scenes, which I'm not showing you here, we've got, We've got elderly women being punched in the face by men at this rally because of the hatred that's been generated for women who simply wish to be heard. Um, we have, um, it was also quite, uh, not as bad as that, but in, in Australia there was a lot of controversy uh, concerning her tour in Australia also, but she did get some support from an Australian MP, Liberal MP, Moira, Moira Deeming, and we have a, a clip of her speaking in Parliament. The final straw, which compelled me to challenge the government head-on, was discovering that school policies and curriculums had been radically altered to remove almost every child safeguarding standard that we'd had. Primary school children were being subjected to erotic sexual content. Female students no longer had the right to single-sex sports teams, toilets or change rooms. And teachers, like me, were being forced to lie to parents about their children, who were secretly living as one gender at school and another gender at home. I realised then that my teaching career was over, because I simply would not ever do the things that I was being asked to do. I would never ask students to tell the class which sexual experiences they'd had and which they were willing to do. I would never tell girls to bind their breasts. I would never accuse gay students of being transphobic. I would never tell my female students that they had to tolerate a male teacher supervising their change rooms. And I was never ever going to lie to parents about what was going on with their own children at school. But I also knew that if I spoke out I was going to be vilified and that I'd never work in a public school again. And that is exactly what happened. So she's speaking out bravely and she supported um, uh, Posey Parker during her event in, um, <clears throat> in, 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 the, in Australia. And for this, she's now being threatened with cancellation. Uh, so we see here the Cauldron Pool reporting um, male liberal leader to expel female MP after she spoke at the Lit Women Speak rally. A group of women legally gathered to speak about women's rights issues in Australia. Um, that gathering was crashed by a group of males. Politicians in the media are now refusing to listen to the group of women. Instead, they're now insisting that the group of males represent and speak for these women. And to make matters worse, the women are now being held responsible for the actions of the men. Let women speak indeed. The men that they're talking about was a group of neo-Nazis or people who purported to be neo-Nazis. I don't know if they were plants or if they were real who showed up masked and dressed in black and making Nazi salutes at one of the Lit Women Speak rallies. They were nothing to do with the women, but they served to paint Lit Women Speak, right, holding that a woman is a woman, a biological female, um, as somehow 
uh, Nazi and far right, because this is the only excuse uh, that the left have got for not listening to people is to paint them as literally Hitler. Um, going back to Auckland, um, we see there's some tweets here from Auckland Pride that I thought I would share with you. They say there's a narrative quickly taking hold amongst anti-trans groups and individuals that park an abandoned event because of violence from our community. Well, there was violence in the community. We saw it. Okay. Uh, they say, we reject this narrative. We have a firm belief that the demonstration of unity, celebration and acceptance alongside joyous music, chanting and the noise of 5,000 supporters was too loud to overcome and the reason for her departure, not the actions of any one individual. Um, we also reject there's any further physical threat from our community towards Parker. This is a baseless rumour that has been perpetuated by those who feel defeated by the events of today. We urge the media not to repeat these allegations without evidence. Um, I don't think they understand how this is playing. Right? Worldwide, their intolerance, their um, repressive tolerance, they tolerate anything from the left, nothing from any other perspective. Their repression of free speech was visible was obvious to all. A few tweets won't cover that. Uh, we finish here with a cartoon uh, which was tweeted out by Kelly J. Keane. And it shows um, a, a huge hand, male hand, um, said, which is claimed to be the spirit of Georgina Bear, which was the world's first transgender MP who was a, a bloke who was a, became a woman who or claimed to be a woman who was an MP in New Zealand. Um, and the voice says, your turf propaganda is not welcome here, um, pointing at uh, Posey Parker. And Kelly J. Keane says, a great big man's hand telling a tiny woman who wants to speak that she cannot. I don't think he understands how perfect this is. And yes, on one level, I think that's correct. On another level, I think there's something else happening here because that's the hand of God telling Kelly J not to speak. From a movement that doesn't believe in God, it's a movement that believes that it is God. It believes it's so right that it can speak with that level of authority. That's what we're seeing there. Their confusion of the, themselves and their entirely human heroes and heroines for a deity. Right? And that, that is the authority they're trying to speak with here. So it's a religion. Um, it's a religion that worships itself, essentially. And that's what uh, Kelly J. Keane is up against. Uh, but doing so with huge courage. And uh, I think that needs to be recognised. OK, thank you, David. Uh, and well, we're very much out of time. But let's just end with this one. Well, this is Nicola looking into the sunset on the good ship Independence, which is sadly not very complete and still in the stocks, in fact, barely started. Now, whilst we've been on air, the uh, result has come in. It is Hamza, 52% uh, to 48%. Uh, Hamza was elected new First Minister of Scotland over Kate Forbes. Um, only 70% of the uh, much reduced electorate of the SNP bothered to vote which was a bit of a surprise. Um, so we have Scooter for FM. More on that story later. Okay. Yeah, my, my reaction to that is we are being exiled in our own land, and that's not a reference to the 
uh, Humza Yosef's colour. That's to do with what is inside his head. But we can do more on that in due course. So we've got a special event today in that we're opening up extra time. Well, right? well, because we have a problem with the main live stream today, then extra will be available for everybody that wants to watch. Uh, and uh, well, we'll be back in a couple of minutes. We will. And hopefully if you enjoy extra time and you're not already a member of the UK column, you will take out that membership at uh, the old price. See you shortly. Okay, bye-bye.